HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If your restaurant wants to put the best on the table, look for food with the New York State Certified Seal. It's food that is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. morning, Heritage Radio Network listeners. I say good morning just to remind everybody we have a new time this season, 11 a.m. on Thursdays, which is nice. It's a nice way to start your day. But if that's not convenient to your schedule, you can always go to iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or HeritageRadioNetwork.org and get Tech Bytes to download. You can subscribe and you can listen to it anytime you want to, which is amazing. I'm Jennifer Leitze, your host, and once a week we come out to the shipping container in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today we have a great guest, a repeat guest, uh, old friend, unindicted co-conspirator, and all-around good talker. We have Lori Williver. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. For those of you interested in picking up Lori's first episode of Tech Bytes, that was episode 49, way back when. Um, she was a co-guest with Melissa Clark from the New York Times. And we talked about the state of being a food writer in the digital age versus the print age. So if anybody wants to flash back on that, that's episode 49. So we have her here today because she is the co-author of a brand spanking new cookbook out the week of October 25th. That is Appetites, a cookbook by Anthony Bourdain with Lori Wilver. With and I, I was told that and is better, but I got with and, uh, and I'm taking it and I'm running with it. It is on the cover, <laughs> My name, <laughs> which is exciting. Is, yes. Her name is on the cover. And, uh, yeah, I think it's always great when you get, you know, top billing. Sure. Top billing. <laughs> One day I will have top billing. For now, uh, billing, I'm very, very happy to have billing. So, Laurie and I had a really uh, great conversation about this book earlier and how uh, the whole thing kind of broke with some, some Instagram posts years and years ago. But before we get to that, we're going to do like we always do on Tech Bytes, and we're going to go around the shipping container and talk about apps we like, apps we've discovered, or old favorites that have just been squatting on the home screen of our smartphones since 2008. Mm -hmm. And first up, we have a special uh, guest engineer today. We have Pierre Bianamé. Ahoy. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> Pierre, nice to have you here today. Yeah, yeah, it's my second time uh, engineering for you. It's fun. Yeah, it's good. It's nice to mix it up and have a, have a new cast of characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you have an app for us today that you like? Um, yeah, it's actually, so it's a website that made their own app. It's, um, it's called, I, I don't know if it's a website, actually. They, they live on Facebook kind of like a lot of places now because they make videos. So uh, it's seriously.tv, and um, they're just humor, satire, but they also deal, 
sometimes with uh, more serious topics and invite some uh, some interesting guests to talk. So what does the app do? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna thumb it right now. It's just you know it's just a uh, a kind of a layout of all of their of all their different videos, so you can watch them there as opposed to scrolling through their Facebook page or something. So then it makes it, does it make it native where you can access things when you're not online? Hmm. I don't know about that. Um. I would. I kind of doubt it. I'm sure it's you're streaming it from this app. So. Okay. Seriously. Dot TV. Yeah. And yeah. That's the plug. Not you had a. You you said something. A phrase which I think we should incorporate more in the digital space when talking about apps. You are going to thumb it right now. Yep. We need bumper stickers. What does that I'm mean? He's going to thumb it right now. Okay. That's. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is radio. I was making thumb gestures. It sounds personal. It's it is personal. It's between you and your phone. Mm. <laughs> Everyone's current closest relationship. Let's exactly. be honest. <laughs> That's a different show, but it sounds like a good topic. Yes. I'll come back for it. <laughs> Lori, do you have a app on your home screen that you I do have, the daily thumb? I have an app. I have a couple that I I've that I'm super familiar with. Uh, the most recent one that's been useful to me is. Uh, it's called the My Challenge app, and it's from the uh, gigantic pyramid scheme company known as Beachbody uh, that I got sucked into over a year ago now uh, through a neighborhood fitness cult. And I was very skeptical at first, and then I decided to buy in with the shakes and the workouts and the online support groups. And like, I equal parts hate it so much and say so many disparaging things about it and then also I'm like I owe everything to this group so that being said uh, we the group there's like a support group thing that um, is you know it's peer pressure negative and positive about you know what did you eat today did you work out blah 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 it's really all about selling shakes and selling products for this company and, and um, for better or worse I'm not selling anything but they took it off Facebook and now made their own app uh, which a helps me to stop wasting time on Facebook, and b just keeps it all in one place. So it's called the My Challenge app, and you put in when you worked out, what you ate, did you have the you know silly shake. Uh, you hear from people in your little support community, and uh, you know when I'm into it and when I need to kind of want to work toward a goal, it's very very useful. And then when I'm like I'm going to eat pizza and drink whiskey, I just don't open it and that also is very useful <laughs> like we're going to do right after the exactly. show exactly because we're at roberta's pizza yes. in bushwick yes and that's what you do after you do tech bites yes exactly so you find the community aspect um whether it be peer, peer pressure making you do it or the crowd support cheering of good job helpful in this in the scenario where you're trying to sort of change your food habits definitely there's well there's something satisfying about you know it's like checking off a box or crossing things off your list so when to to go in and say this is the meal that i had or this is the workout that i did uh i find it very satisfying there's some construction going on i, I think, think they're, they're i think they're having a crowbar tossing contest out in the tiki bar that yes that is <laughs> perfectly on brand with the neighborhood uh, the opening episode for the fall season of Tech Bites, we had Rachna Giovanni, who's one of the co-founders of the Food Stand app. And she was on because they launched this fall a new component called Good Food Challenges. Hmm. And you may just want to just check it out because similarly, it is outside of Facebook. It's its own community and it sets you up with setting really kind of small challenges for yourself, hoping that small challenges turn into more significant changes in your eating habits. So things mm -hmm. like drinking less soda, eating more vegetarian, did you do this? But the whole thing is community-based. You can assign a buddy, but it's also only positive reinforcement. And it's a very simple, did you do it today? And you make a check with your finger on the screen mm -hmm. or your thumb if you're Pierre. Um, then... It'll sort of remind you and prompt you, and you do it for 30 days, and then after that, it checks back in with you to see if you're still doing it. So that, they were very specific about the, the different ways they were setting up the challenges, and one of them was for it to be positive reinforcement only, mm -hmm. so not to be negative or uh, browbeating or anything like that. But do you find 
that having the potential negative reinforcement is helpful? Because some people do and some people don't. In this context, there isn't there isn't a negative reinforcement for sure. It's like, you know, if somebody goes on and says, oh, I didn't get to do my workout today or oh, I really went off the rails with my eating there's a chorus of people that are like, oh, you know, tomorrow's another day and, you know, all this positive stuff, which I, you know, I, I definitely appreciate to a point. And then there's the part of me that's like, oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and I, and I turn it off, you know, but, um, but as sort of, uh, you know, glass half empty as I am, I have actually gotten a lot out of this sort of positive uh, community of fitness and you know wellness kind of uh situation because yeah if somebody's telling you you suck and you're fat and you're not doing well enough in your workouts like that to me is not motivating at all so i think that's boot camp yeah yeah or jillian michaels you know who's, <laughs> there's a time and a place but uh I'm, I'm down with the positive okay excellent so that's another new one for us to take a look at my app this week is I'm always using my phone for reading for the most part um, and mostly only informational and newsy nonfiction things because I like to get my fiction in a paper book Mm -hmm. and I I typically get those from the library. But my app this week is called Blinkist and I'm on a three-day free trial and you create an account and it gives you a library of it looks like primarily nonfiction at this stage you select things that you're interested in and then ultimately you pay a subscription fee and then you get to download and read i think a number of books so mm-hmm. netflixy for okay. nonfiction, yeah. i think blinkist i'm checking it out if anybody has any thoughts or comments about that you can get in touch with us at techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Let us know what you think. What's your favorite app? If we haven't talked about it, let us know. Maybe we can. You could call in. That would be fun. Anyway, to the point at hand, Appetites, a cookbook by Anthony Bourdain with Lori Wooliver. Out October 25th, 3750 from Echo Books. For those following along at home. That was, she's laughing because I'm doing a good plug. Yes. I'm doing a good infomercial. That's all the details. One of the things Lori and I talked about when we were getting ready to do this show, and I think it's an interesting one, digital social media has absolutely prolonged the life of the print cookbook by about two years. And, you know, Lori worked with Tony on Anthony Bourdain on his Leal cookbook. Yes. And that was back in, two, that published in 2002, 2004? Published in 2004. I started working on it in 2002. But you kind of had to wait for the magazines and the print media for the actual pub date of the book to really get that party started. Right. There was no, I'm sure... I, I don't know if there was any, I don't remember even now back then if people did advance uh, notices for a book or that there was the, the kind of hype machine or if it was just the book hits the shelves and then the machine starts rolling. I, I don't remember any particular advance uh, buzz around it. And there were just, I think, you know, this was the Friendster era. So things were not the way that they are now in terms of platforms for early promotion. I remember we first talked about this book, Appetites, and you're writing it with him mm-hmm. back in 2014. Right. I think we were at the Lucky Peach holiday party yes. at that funky Chinatown restaurant. Yes, giant banquet hall of, of beer and Dim food. sum yeah. stuff. Yeah. There was that giant ugly fish that everybody Instagrammed. Right. Yes. I think it was a giant tile fish or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. with a lot of chili peppers on it. Yeah. Anyway, that was the first we talked about it. And you recalled that the very first public breaking of the story was in February on Big Gay Ice Cream's Instagram feed. Correct. Yes. This was the first uh, news out, of, out in the ether. Uh, we did an early recipe testing session at Tony's house. Uh, a number of things that we wanted to sort of work through and, and figure out how we were going to develop the recipe. And, of course, we turned it into, like, a little impromptu dinner party, and Doug Quint was there as one of the guests. He took a bunch of pictures, as a lot of people did, and he... I forget now if it was authorized or not, but it went up the next day on social media, just to, and and... He, you know, this is a Tony and Lori are working on a book. This is a, one of the dishes or something like that. 
And of course, the eagle eyes over at Eater spotted it immediately. I remember, I think I got a call at like seven in the morning from somebody at Eater being like, what's this about the book? Uh, so, and that was, and it was unauthorized. And I think maybe we played coy for a little while until the, the official machine got caught up to speed. And, and uh, so it was just a funny way to sort of break the news. But that was, you know, going on two years ago. So it's, this has been a long, long rollout enabled by all of our wonderful social, social media tools. So if anybody wants to start following Doug Quint, he is half of the Big Gay Ice Cream Empire. You can follow him on Instagram at Big Gay Ice Cream. No punctuation mm-hmm. altogether. He has about 50,000 followers. He has a great Instagram feed. They have a great Instagram feed. They're very interactive. They're fun. And they're friends with the Bourdain so that mm-hmm. they've been featured in their Instagram feed for a while. So two years out, has that made working on the book easier, harder? Has it been a prominent storyline in your conversations with like media and press and people wanting to know? Have you just had to fend off the media for two years longer than you normally would have? I don't know that it's had a significant impact on the making of the book. Uh, you know, from my personal perspective, I, I get a little bit squeamish wondering, you know, how many times can we roll this thing out? And I, and I think it's... It's not, you know, it's not my my role to, to decide, you know, how these things hit and when. Um, but just as a sort of modest person, I, I go, oh, okay, well, there was there was that, and then there was the actual announcement of the book, and then there's the cover reveal, and the you know, and the announcement of the pub date, and there's all these points, and they're very well spread out over a long period of time. But you know, I, a little bit I worry about. Um, Jumping the shark? Well, mar- jumping the shark or market fatigue or just, like, enough already. You know, I've, I've posted a couple of things on my Facebook page, and I get, you know, wonderful, generous rounds of congratulations from the friends and family that I'm connected with on Facebook. And then I'm like, I got to – I think I'm done here because I can't I, – to me it feels, like, embarrassing, <laughs> you know, to, to have – you know, rounds and rounds of people going, great work, congratulations. So I think I am personally done, uh, but it just, it sort of has just pointed up to me the fact that these things get rolled out, you know, every, every new development in the life of a book, especially a book that's hyped with a, with a high profile celebrity marquee author, um, is another opportunity for the publishing apparatus to kind of, um, put some word out and some excitement out there. It's not a bad thing. I mean, I hope this book sells like millions of copies, but it's, um, it's just a, it's a new landscape, I think for books in the last decade or so, or, or less. It's a new landscape for books for sure. And the thing that's interesting is that it it does reveal, I think a lot more of the work that goes into a cookbook, which previously I don't think a lot of people ever really thought about that much Mm. and especially people who are aspiring food writers cookbook authors themselves Mm -hmm. um i think many people think oh you know well i cook some good stuff i'll just write it down and we'll take some pictures i should have a cookbook too Mm -hmm. Um, but when you see that actually you know if you started working on it more than two years ago and all the work that goes into it i think it does reveal that part of it to people who are interested yeah The other thing that's interesting is that because so much of how we consume news and updates in social media today, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the powers that be at these social media companies are deciding when you get the updates. So Mm. all of these algorithms that pump out the the sequence of the posts that you get in your feed, you don't necessarily get a post as soon as it's posted in real time. Mm. If it comes from a business or a friend of a friend or a news entity, they have these algorithms that are going to sort of change up the order of how you receive things. So one of the things that is also not really apparent when you're scrolling through a feed in social media somewhere is when the post actually happened. Because hmm. oftentimes, I'm sure you've done it too, you click on an article or you click on a news story and you go back to the original on the media's website mm-hmm. and you discover, oh, this is from 
February 2014. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought this was recent. It's really not. Yeah. Because of the way the algorithms feed up things. So it's interesting because you, as soon as something just goes into the social media pile, it can resurface and resurface and resurface for years anyway. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I think Facebook more so than the others. I mean, Instagram's Instagram is starting to now because they, right? they, with their recent update, they split the Instagram population into business and then personal. So if you change your account to be a business account, which we're thinking about doing here on Tech Bytes, mm-hmm. we're at Tech Bytes HRN on Instagram and Twitter. Right now we're just a regular personal account because that's what you had mm-hmm. when we signed up. But now we can potentially be a business, mm-hmm. which we might do. But then if we do that, we're going to get shuffled in the in the posting feed. Right, right. Yeah. It's um, it's a strange, strange new world. Yeah, you kind of don't know when news is news. Right, right. And on that note, we're going to find out the news of who is sponsoring this show. Heritage Radio Network is a dot org, 501c3 nonprofit. And that means we keep the lights on and radio on the airwaves with the support of members like you and our amazing sponsors. New York chefs and restaurants are proud of the food they put on the table. And serving produce that comes from local, environmentally responsible farms is a way to leave an even better taste in everyone's mouth. So when shopping for your ingredients, look for the New York State Grown and Certified Seal. It lets you know which food is grown right, right here in New York State. Certifying the food that comes from local farms that meet a higher standard. You'll not only be serving local food, you'll be supporting local farmers. Learn more about the New York State Grown and Certified Program at certified.ny.gov. Well, if you're just dropping in and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today we are talking with Lori Williver, co-author of Appetites, a cookbook by Anthony Bourdain with Lori Williver. And... She had worked with Tony on the Leal cookbook back in 2004. And so this is 12 years later. In terms of the process of writing and producing a book mm-hmm. 10, 12 years later in now digital media, mm-hmm. were there big significant changes or is writing a recipe, testing it and rewriting it still the same process? I'd say it's, Yes and no. Some of the, some of the things are fundamentally not going to change. It's true. Uh, researching, developing, writing a recipe is it is what it is. Despite whether you're emailing it to somebody or or passing around handwritten notes or you know pouring through old recipes, whatever it is, that stuff remains the same. But I do think things can happen on an accelerated schedule now because of technology. And this was also I was thinking back to. When I worked with Mario Batali on a couple of books uh, before the Leal cookbook, it, to my recollection, it felt like a slower process. Um, and this was now back where we didn't necessarily have email. I'm talking late '90s, early 2000s, uh, and there was there were you know reams of paper with handwritten edits on them from Clarkson Potter. And, you know, meetings where physically everybody had to be in the room to go over layouts or design decisions or just various editorial considerations. And that has definitely changed. And I think that's that's been able to speed the process of making a book. There was so few times, if any, in the making of this book, Appetites, where I was in a room with all of the major players involved, you know, from the publishing company, myself and Tony, going over it it was everything's been you know email and and with a with a couple of sit downs between me and tony and a couple of cooking sessions but it i I think all of the ways in which we can communicate with each other and dropbox things to each other and you know send huge files digital image files all of that has really probably shaved several months off the process of making a book and this is a book with a lot of moving parts with a lot of different art considerations and a lot just a lot of input from a lot of people and I, from all over literally all over the world uh you know from getting recipe input from our friends that tony has met in his travels to 
two different illustrators to a big amount of input from Nathan Mirvold, who's based on the West Coast. Uh, you know, all of this, I think if we had tried to do something like this 10 or 15 years ago, it would have added a year and probably a lot of money to the process of, of pulling all those parts together. And money is a critical piece because this book is still very accessible. It's 37 50 mm-hmm. I think, is the cover price. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not one of those 50 or $60 coffee table books that maybe, you know, becomes a, a greater investment. But it is a, a beautiful, tactile object. Mm-hmm. And I don't know quite how to uh, tease out what I'm trying to say, because historically, with Tony's first writings about his personal experience as a as a as a cook and a chef and his personal history in the industry most of his books have been very personal mm-hmm. and his television shows and his traveling it's all very personal in that it's through the lens of his experience and and his frame of reference so i don't think it's accurate to say this this book is oh it's a very personal book because i feel like everything that he does is very personal mm-hmm. but in some ways this book feels personal on a different level more intimate level sure it's a family cookbook yeah. and it's also very personal in that it was shot it's with friends and family and shot mm-hmm. yep half the photography took place at tony's home and half of it was in a studio, but involving, uh, you know, his family and some of our friends. And, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a it's it's a personal book on a lot of levels. How is that different from the personal from the other ones, though? Because it's all it, it's all first person of I made this. I really like this. Mm-hmm. This is what I think the the best rendition of a hamburger is. Mm-hmm. I traveled. I ate this. I loved it. This is my best rendition of my travel food. I mean, those storylines and recipes we've seen from him. But what do you think it is that makes this one just feel more personal? Well, the first book, the first cookbook is a is a restaurant cookbook. So those are codified recipes that are you know meant to be replicated by whomever is cooking in the kitchen that day, and maybe they were conceived or. Uh, developed by Tony when he was the chef there in a specific way, but they're still, they were still meant to hew to classic principles of French bistro cooking, and they also need to be sort of universally replicable. So that's not the case here with these recipes. They can be whatever. You know, I always remember this time when I went and did a, a private cooking event with Tony back um, in 2007. We were in Montana um, cooking for some, I forget, some university slash charity situation. We were in somebody's home cooking dinner for, I think, 10 people. And we had, you know, a, a, a budget, a great budget. And it wasn't, there were not the restrictions that you have in a restaurant environment. So we made lobster bisque from the first book. And we used probably twice as much lobster as we needed to because we could. And I remember how good it was and how it didn't matter. We weren't trying to, like, you know, hew to a, P&L situation. It was just, let's make the best lobster bisque we can make. And it was so meaty and lobstery. And I remember him remarking, like, you could never do this. You would never get away with this. Your restaurant would close if you ever went this way, you know, as in a production situation. But isn't it great that we can do it here for, you know, these people and their friends and family? And so I think that's some of that informs these recipes where, you know, you, you're not going to make this for 1,200 people. You're not going to make it six times a week in a restaurant, but you can you can do it at home because you're doing it for people that you actually care about. You're going to be looking at them as they eat it. You're going to be eating it with them. So you know maybe you can you can splurge out a little bit in a way that you wouldn't in a. So that's that's a sort of a personal side of it, I think. One noticeable uh, element when I was looking through the book is. To follow your train of thought, a restaurant has appetizers, salads, main courses, and desserts. Mm -hmm. And there don't appear to be any desserts in this book. (laughs) There appears to be a page talking uh, about how great cheese is. Yes. Yes. (laughs) In lieu of a chocolate, molten chocolate cake recipe or some crepes or something like that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that was a very personal choice from Tony, uh, but I'm uh, totally on board with it as well. I I've said before that, you know, there are 
vast differences between being a savory cook and being a pastry cook or pastry chef. And uh, Tony's always been very honest about what his strengths are and what his strengths are not. And, and you know, he said, I, I'm not good at making desserts. It's a whole other skill set that I don't possess. I'm sure, you know, if with the gun to his head, he could make a perfectly good whatever dessert. You know, yeah. he's, he's a trained cook and a professional and... Uh, and, and I feel the same way. You know, I, I, I see that it's a, a set of skills and it's a cool hand and it's a precision that it's not it's not my strength in the kitchen. So I was quite relieved when he said he did not want to include desserts. And we even got some pushback and some pressure to, well, maybe you just put a few desserts in. And it was like, no, we're going to stand firm on this. We're not making desserts. If you want desserts, there's plenty of highly talented professionals that you can buy a beautiful dessert from or get some chocolate. And the, the preference here is a big wheel of Stilton and a bottle of port and a spoon. So as the co-author, do you feel like your your work is now done? You have a beautiful book in your hand. You have a little you have the the publicity tour coming up and there will be a big publicity tour. Um, if you want to see the dates, those are at anthonybourdainontour.com. He'll be doing a bunch of cities, New York, Philly, Detroit, Toronto, San Jose and points in between. If you want to check that out, Two years working on the book. Is my work done? I, sh- certainly, the book—you know—the the making of the book part is done. Uh, and any opportunities that I get to promote it are—you know—that doesn't feel like work to me. To you know, to be here today, for instance, uh, you know, I'm doing some writing uh, that's a- around the book uh, for a couple different publications, and I'm sure that's work. But yeah, I, I do feel like it's it's in the can, and now the 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 sort of the fun part of, of getting to see people react to it and hear their thoughts and hopefully they're, you know, mostly positive and useful thoughts, but there's always, you know, there's always some detractors or some, you know, no, no book is perfect. So, uh, maybe the hard work is sort of bracing for inevitable criticism or backlash. Uh, but yeah. And, and then also looking to see like, well, what's next, you know, what, what can I, how can I leapfrog off this opportunity into the next thing and, 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 you know, grow as a, as a writer? I think a lot of people, especially now with the the social media and the internet that we've talked about and all the shows and all the content you can consume about cookbooks and the making of and the behind the scenes and all of that. I think there is a little bit of a misconception, like so many things related to food where people think, oh, I'm a great cook. I have these great recipes. I share them with my friends and family. I should write a cookbook. Mm -hmm. That would be great. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about the practical side of that. Is it as easy as writing down a recipe and taking a photo and packaging it up? I mean, what, what is it that takes two years? Well, anyone can write a cookbook, uh, can you get somebody interested in publishing and selling it? You know, that's, there's a lot of a lot of money that goes into making that. So if you're happy to self-publish or web-publish and you've got the time and the means to do that, that's a great uh, avenue. I mean, the, the landscape of publishing right now is such that nobody's taking risks on unknown quantities. So if you want to write and publish a cookbook with a major publishing house it would be helpful to already have one or more restaurants, uh, to have already established a profile as a writer in, you know, having articles in the major food magazines or the major national, uh, newspapers. Uh, you know, it's, it's not to say it's impossible, but it's, I think it's a very steep climb to think that just because you happen to be charming and, uh, you know, have some good recipes that you're going to get a book deal. I mean, and right now all of these, like former model actresses are now crowding into the sphere, which, you know, I'm a little bit like, why don't you stay in your lane? You know, like, are you not making enough money with your modeling and your acting and your cosmetic contracts? Do you need to also now write cookbooks? Like maybe just leave something for the rest of us. Well, is there opportunity there for someone skilled like yourself to write and recipe test to come in and and is there a lot of ghostwriting going on now? Is sure. there a lot of um, below the fold, you know, co-authorship of professional recipe testers and professional cooks and professional food writers? Sure, helping out behind the scenes because I mean, just as just as an example, I, I don't know that 
listeners and most of the public understand what we mean when we say recipe testing mm. and what mm. that that's a very specific skill set and it's what makes a recipe work or not work when you get it in a cookbook or when you see it online. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's, I mean, you're, you're right. You're very glass half full with this scenario that sure there's, there's always in most cases, if somebody has a high profile career, that's not in the restaurant world, or even if it is, they're going to want to hire a co-author or a ghostwriter or somebody to really do all that heavy lifting. And then ideally a separate person to do recipe testing and all of the other jobs that go around um, making a cookbook. So uh, I just, you know, I look at, at the way that, that um, people from the entertainment world are kind of crowding into this space. And I just think, you know, t- 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you wouldn't be caught dead doing a cookbook. You wouldn't be, you know, making your cupcakes at a festival or like at all, you know, and it, it seems like a business decision. I don't know. Maybe times are tough all around, but I just think there's enough talented people that don't happen to also be, you know, cover girl models that, and of course, you know, it's a, it's sort of a slam dunk for the consumer. If you can see somebody that's absolutely gorgeous and also is purporting to know how to cook something that's really delicious, I can see why that's very appealing, you know, but again, it's like, leave some room for the rest of us. It's just probably diversifying the brand. Like yes. if we can get into another lane, let's get into another lane. Sure. And I think most people... Not most people, but I think in a business scenario, you know, if you're taking opportunity to expand your brand, you know, taking as many lanes as you can is the way to go. But I think you raise an interesting point, given that publishing, cookbook publishing specifically, seems to have gotten leaner and leaner Mm -hmm. over the past 10 years. And does that mean that we're missing out on potentially some really interesting stories and really interesting cooking or, you know, food histories that might start to get lost because we're going to wind up with, you know, the same high profile people doing everything for us. That's a good question. Well, that's where the web I think comes in and picks up that, that slack because there's, there's so much more on the web now in terms of recipes and stories. And there's so much more real estate available for cheap, you know, for people to, to write these things. So, you know, it's, yes, a tangible book. There probably are going to be fewer of them. And it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. I think, you know, of the many, many cookbooks that do still get published a year, like, you know, how many do you really want and how many are really useful or just sort of vanity projects or, you know, lane extending, brand extending projects? It's a, something to consider. But the, the web is, is as viable a place as ever for good recipes. That should still be tested. That should still have beautiful photography if you can afford it and should, should still, you know, be something you can rely on. But... That's that's where I think a lot of stuff is migrating just as a cost uh, reality. So back to my one of the earlier questions, what the hell is recipe testing? What is that? Recipe testing, I think, in in its ideal form is uh, where somebody who has not seen the recipe before, who has no prior knowledge or or any kind of um, investment in it working or not, uh, but and, and who is a very skilled cook and willing to be very precise, just takes the recipe and cooks it exactly as it appears on the page. Verbatim. Verbatim. And tells the writer uh, all of their feedback on it, good or bad. This didn't work. This was a little dry. Here, I would have added a little bit of water to the pan at this point. Or, you know, really, so, you know, kicks the tires on a recipe to get it to a place where as many readers and cooks as possible can do a great job with it. And it's it's not easy. And ideally, this happens two or three times with every recipe. It becomes very expensive, and it's not always possible. But ideally, a lot of people are kicking the tires on this thing and, and really punching it around until it's great and universally accessible. So a little shameless self-promotion. If you Google Jennifer Leutzi and Mastering Simplicity, you will get my co-author, book comes up on Amazon. I too have a USBN number at the Library of Congress. And I wrote a I co-wrote a cookbook with a chef, a professional chef, a very fancy French chef. And people I would think would guess that chefs write great recipes, mm-hmm. but chefs actually don't write great recipes because so much of what they do is instinctive. Mm-hmm. That they leave it out 
in the step-by-step. So part of what Lori's saying when she says following the letter of the recipe and verbatim, you kind of, if you're a, if you're a well-trained cook or you're a good cook, you have to resist the urge to fix the recipe as you're going mm-hmm. along yeah. and make adjustments and just sort of let it come out not great mm-hmm. if you have to, to get it right, to figure out the things you have to add in. And one of the things that notoriously in the recipes um, in terms of writing and rewriting and editing them was the addition of like salt and pepper at the end or salt and pepper to taste because that was just so instinctual in the professional chef's activity. They just, Mm -hmm. their hands and just do it automatically. That, Mm -hmm. That was something that was never in the first draft of the recipes. Right. And I would say, do you need to add salt and pepper here and here? And he would say, yeah, of course. And I said, well, but you didn't write it down. And he said, I don't have to write it down because you do. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite part of working on this book? Uh, you know, it gave me the opportunity uh, in developing recipes at home to have like a series of little dinner parties all the time. Uh, either if it was just me and my husband and my son, or a lot of times we would have neighbors over, family members over, because uh, I would have to say, well, well, I'm, I'm working on the octopus stew, or I'm working on the whatever. And so it was like I, I was working, but I was also able to entertain and feed people at the same time. And that was really enjoyable. And it really forced me back into the kitchen uh, in a way that I hadn't really been as much, you know, and, and got me sort of out of some, some dinner, family dinner ruts and, and thinking in new ways about what's, what could be for dinner. So that, that I really, I loved that a lot. And I also really loved, although it was a lot of work and a lot of agita, I really loved the, uh, producing the photography, um, running that, that whole show. We broke it up into two parts, five days each. And uh, to work collaboratively with Tony, with the photographer, with the very talented uh, food stylist and her assistants and the prop stylist and everybody kind of throwing their ideas in the pot and making stuff up on the fly and and really creating these striking, in some cases, kind of upsetting images. um, That was I, I loved that. The photography is very unique in this book, Mm -hmm. especially um, the things that were shot at home. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, um, it's almost like still life. You know, it's some of the, some of the shots are really like this very odd tableau still life Mm -hmm. um, with things involving, you know, half eaten sandwiches and uh, jujitsu training, grappling dummies and uh, people, you know, eating food with two hands and I mean it's it's yeah. really interesting yeah. and something that I don't think we've seen before which is always exciting when you see a fresh look at something because cookbook photography can get yeah. a little it goes, repetitive. It goes through waves of what what's fashionable now uh, the photographer is Bobby Fisher not the chess player but the photographer uh, and he's fantastic and it was very open to all of Tony's ideas and and very willing to work with us. And he comes more from the world of fashion and travel photography. So I think he had a really fresh perspective on what it meant to shoot food. He had done one other cookbook, which was Roy Choi's book, L.A. Sun, about a year or two before that. So, yeah, he he had the exact aesthetic that we were going for and was very, you know, willing to get creative and flexible and have a good time with it. And uh, so it was it was a pleasure to work with him. And I mean, yes, I saw there was a UK blurb about the book that went out from the UK publisher. And I think they referred to some of the photos as beautiful and grotesque, which I thought sounds about right. Yeah. It was like, yeah, pretty much. I mean, and then there, I mean, and we tried not to go a hundred percent grotesque. I mean, there'll be something that's bizarre and upsetting or strange and, and weird. And then the next page, there'll be just a really beautiful plate of food, you know, and then there'll be, uh, somebody doing something weird and then it'll be another grotesque thing and then just like a beautiful, you know, a single chicken feather or something that's sort of evocative. So we wanted to really, it's a visual polyglot. I mean, from the cover, which is a Ralph Steadman illustration, which is very um, striking to there's a pullout poster at the end of the book that is suitable for framing that was made by an illustrator, uh, I believe from Germany. Um, that's another, actually, I have a little 
insider story about the ways that social media can actually stymie a book. Uh, we had initially hired a different illustrator to do the poster, and he did. It's a, about building the perfect burger. Yes, yes. Yeah, the poster is Bourdain Perfect Burger. So we hired uh, an illustrator. He did a beautiful poster, and the uh, publishing house sent out, I think, just the poster as sort of a teaser, excitement building sort of bonus. To the media they, and no, the people? No, they sent it out to booksellers okay. to generate excitement. And I don't know whether or not the posters came with specific instructions, but one overeager bookseller took a photo of it, as you do, and put it up on Instagram. Of course. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. And, but, and again, I don't know if he was instructed not to or not, but he wasn't supposed to. And he did, and it caused a real panic and an uproar, and we ended up... Panic and an uproar inside the publisher, yeah. excitement and frenzy... I guess so. In the world. I never even saw it. I mean, it w as soon as somebody caught wind, they asked him to take him, it down, and he did, to his credit, take it down immediately. I don't even know who the bookseller was or where geographically they were located, and I'm sure they felt not great about making this mistake. But they did, and the decision was made to then scrap the initial poster and go with the whole new poster uh, with a new illustrator, uh, which... You know, a great opportunity for the second guy, probably pretty disappointing for the first guy, you know, and and, and, and not their fault and no one's fault. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm sure I could come up with a list of people to blame if I wanted to. But, you know, it's like water under the bridge and, you know, these things happen. But that's something that wouldn't have happened 10 or 15 years ago. No, um, it'd be impossible. Yeah. So it just, you know, it's it's the good and the bad. You know, things get leaked sometimes in a way that's very positive, and sometimes it's like, it's a problem. Well, it sounds like it was only, well, problem. Problem yeah. for that, that illustrator, yeah, you know. Exactly. And I guess if they had to spend the money to do it again. Exactly. We are out of time, which is a bummer, um, because I always like talking to Lori about food writing and the industry and all of that. Uh, it's also great to talk about people who have some good hindsight and history in the industry. I find that lacking sometimes today in the social media, online, instamatic type of world where we have a lot of people who just are looking at something at a moment in time and kind of forget that people have been writing cookbooks for a while and the way mm -hmm. things used to be, the juxtaposition of then and now, I think is always really helpful. So I always enjoy that. Uh, in my conversations with Lori. If you want to follow her on Instagram, she is at Lori Williver. If you want to get information about Appetites, a cookbook by Anthony Bourdain with Lori Williver, go to anthonybourdainontour.com. Um, I also recommend following Anthony Bourdain on Instagram as well. He's at Anthony Bourdain, at Bourdain Books. And then if you want to follow the publisher, at Echo Books. We are just about out of time, but I always like to ask my guests for a piece of usable advice for our listeners so they can maybe, you know, have something to do in their day-to-day -day lives. So you cook a lot at home. You're a professional food writer, cookbook author. You talked about getting back into cooking at home and out of the, you know, sort of family dinner doldrums and all of that. Mm -hmm. With all of the information you have at your disposal... What's your best advice to putting together a quick dinner, quick dinner for friends on the fly? Hmm. Let's see. Uh, you know, pasta is always uh, an, an easy, uh, an easy go-to. I mean, you boil your water, you make your pasta, and then whatever goes on it is, is, is just like, well, what do you have on hand? You know, maybe it's just a jar of anchovies and a little bit of garlic. That's delicious. You know, uh, melt your anchovies in a little oil, put some garlic, sliced up garlic cloves in there, toss it with the pasta. Ideally, you've got a bottle of wine. You know, that's that's a 20 minute or less buy in uh, or, you know, very thinly pounded, whatever it is, chicken breast, veal, you know, pork. I mean, that's a, it's so fast. A little egg, a little breadcrumb in the pan, salt, pepper, you know, a little salad. I mean, it's it's. Um, those those are like very easy, fast go-to meals that I feel like I could do, provided I've been shopping. To me, the, the biggest time suck is the shopping. But if you've got a freezer and you've got a fridge and you've got, you know, 20 minutes, it's it's 
very easy. Freezer shopping is another thing that I think is very underrated. I don't even know what freezer shopping is. Freezer shopping is like you made, you know, four quarts of bean soup. You froze three of them. And so you stock up your freezer and then you can shop through your own freezer. Exactly. Okay. For a minute, when you said freezer shopping, I thought you were talking about something like one of my personal favorites. There's a... uh, food chain in France called Picard sur Gelée, and it is a grocery store of only frozen foods. Oh. And you walk in, and it's they're very quiet, and they have just rows and rows of freezers, mm-hmm. and the little freezer bags when you check out, and it's everything from chopped fresh frozen herbs to like enormous, elaborate ice cream, bomb, Charlotte type desserts to a whole poached salmon to a you know 40 pack of burgers they're just magical weird interesting places so to me that's freezer shopping okay i'm i'm intrigued by that next time you go to france picard social yeah for sure well again out of time i want to thank Lori williver for coming out to bushwick and having a great talk about her newest book project i want to thank you our listeners for stopping by and listening and if you liked the show and if you like heritage radio and think it's important for us to have interesting conversations about food and our food life go to heritageradio.org click on the beating heart we are a 501c3 nonprofit. we need you to survive if you can throw us what you spent on pizza this week or maybe what you spent on coffee today that would help us make more radio If you click on the beating heart, go to the donate page and use the drop down and designate your donation for Tech Bytes, I will send you the podcast potluck PDF cookbook for free. It's really good. Get it. I'm Jennifer Leutze. This is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.